Well, when we began this series a few weeks ago entitled Collisions with Grace, uh, it was fun to be able to plan this out with my brother John Perez. And we were talking about what is a collision with grace, and we talked about the book of Luke and all the different stories that there are about lives that were eternally changed because of Jesus. You see, Jesus is the focus. He is the grace. And our interaction with him today as believers, there was a collision there with Christ, and eternal life was the result. And that's what we see in, this, in the book of Luke. That's why it's become one of my favorite gospels, just because of all the different stories of people that had an encounter with Jesus. Because Jesus didn't just talk to people, right? He connected with people. He changed their lives. He loved people. Chuck Swindoll says that Jesus interacted with others to educate and then to liberate. There's freedom in Christ. So today we're going to engage about the story of the rich ruler and Jesus. When Jennifer and I first began dating some 20 plus years ago, being Chinese, I wanted to introduce her to my culture. And so one of the best ways to do that, let's go watch a movie. So I took her to go see Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. It was in Chinese and she understood none of it. But there were subtitles, thankfully. But afterwards, we talked about it because she loved the movie. She loved the cinematography, the characters, the music, the story. But the one thing that she really struggled with was the ending. She didn't like that it was a sad ending. In my response, I was like, oh, I thought it was kind of cool. I think it was, it was a beautiful, tragic ending. And then it got me thinking because as we continued dating and got married, I continued to watch film with her. Right, so we watch movies like City on Fire, The Way of the Dragon, The Emperor and the Assassin, Hero. You probably don't know any of those. I recommend Hero and the Emperor and the Assassin, uh, great Chinese movies. But in all of these movies, she noticed that the good guy dies. Right, the hero usually doesn't win. And so in Chinese culture, tragedy is kind of the norm, right? Disaster, a tragedy is the expectation, and so pessimism and cynicism are prevalent in our culture, and that carries over into Chinese entertainment. There is rarely a story where there is a happily ever after moment. And that's why the story of the rich ruler really stuck out to me, always. And even more so, it was the sovereignty of God uh, in revealing it to me that this tragedy that we see is something we're going to talk about. In this collision with grace, there's a story about the rich ruler and his rejection of Jesus Christ. So we're going to spend our time in Luke 18, 18 through 30 today. And it reads this, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. 
And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the story of Jesus and the rich ruler. We thank you for all of the stories in the Gospel of Luke that point to your goodness and point to hope in Jesus alone. Lord, I pray for us as a church family today as we study this text together that you will open our eyes, open our hearts, open up our minds to what you will have us do with this truth and what we need to do to live into your will. Father, we give this time up to you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So to fully understand what's going on in the story of Jesus and the rich ruler, this is what's going on. Jesus is doing his everyday thing. He's going around teaching and preaching and, and recruiting disciples. And specifically in this section of text, in the stories before and after, we see the idea of salvation be, being clarified by Jesus. So in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus talks about salvation. When he talks about interacting with little children and having faith like a child to have salvation. And then here, he talks with the rich ruler about salvation. So you can look at today's message if we're talking about film. There's three scenes. You have Jesus and the rich ruler in a one-on-one -on -one interaction. You have Jesus and the crowd in an interaction. And then you have Jesus and his disciples in the final interaction. And so we begin in verse 18. The Greek word for ruler is someone that has administrative authority, a leader, an official, someone who's kind of a big deal, a leading man. In the Matthew account of this narrative, we see that he's a young ruler as well, and culturally that meant he would be in the 24 to 40-year-old age range. So culturally, in Jewish culture, I am old. A couple laughs there, that's all right. But he is also wealthy which means he has an abundance of possessions. He has an abundance more than the average person. And this ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? For us as believers, we know what eternal life is as given in John 17, 3, which says, as this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This question is very similar to the one posed by the lawyer in Luke 10. But the difference between the two stories is that the lawyer in Luke 10 was a jerk. This young ruler was looking for hope. We see in the Mark account of this narrative that he ran and knelt before Jesus to ask him this question. We see a posture of humility. And it's very interesting to me that the ruler asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Because an inheritance is something that's just given to you, right? If he really wanted to talk about something he had to do, he should be saying, what must I do to earn eternal life? Well, that would be the right text. So even in what he said, you can see it's almost like he's trying to understand grace. But he can't really wrap his mind about it because of his tradition and culture of what he's been taught and his collision with grace in Jesus Christ. And we see the ruler using the word good as he addresses Jesus. And this is a superficial kind of addressing, not in a negative way, but he's trying to earn brownie points and favor because usually a teacher would be addressed as rabbi. But we'll talk about that more in a second. But he asks the age-old question, how can I be sure that I'm saved? Because the ruler wants to make sure there is nothing that he has overlooked in order to gain heaven. Most Jews believe because they're descendants of Abraham 
that they're already good and they're going to have access to heaven. Most of them believe that I follow all the laws and the commandments. I do stuff to earn God's favor. I should have heaven. But this ruler is still struggling because the reality is any works-based belief system will always lead to anxiety and doubt. You will always ask yourself, have I done enough? Am I good enough? And your heart will play mind game after mind game because we know the reality is we're not good enough. And so Jesus, being the brilliant teacher in verse 19, responds, why do you call me good? Know that only God alone is good. Because the word good was only used in regards to God, about God, and never man, not even a rabbi. Let me be crystal clear here, though. Jesus is not denying his divinity here. You have false teachers that are trying to use this as some of the text to disprove the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the hypostatic union, but that's false. So please know, if you ever hear a teacher that denies the divinity of Jesus Christ, you run from that garbage and you never open your ears to trash like that ever again. What Jesus is doing is he is asking leading questions because he wants to draw this person to a certain conclusion. He wants to teach him and wants to lead him to where he needs to be because Jesus is the ultimate master teacher. Jesus is not wanting this ruler to use the word good so casually because the truth is no one is good except God, right? Man's moral goodness does not come anywhere near the perfect, righteous, holy, and goodness of God. So Jesus, asking this question, he's wanting the ruler to do this. He wants the ruler to focus on God and who he is. He wants the ruler to focus on the goodness of God, which is one of God's attributes, meaning that there's no evil in God, that God always has perfect intentions, that God always does what is right. But he also wants to reveal to the ruler what the ruler is truly lacking, so he can have a genuine response to Jesus to show the ruler that he really isn't that good and that he can't be good enough to inherit eternal life. Because only God is good. Remember that God is the standard and the benchmark of goodness. Anything less than his standard falls short and misses. God is the proper example of goodness. And the sooner the ruler understands that, the sooner the ruler is going to understand, oh, I'm in trouble. Jesus also wants the ruler to understand, if you're calling me good, then you're, go you're calling me God as well. So awesome. So Jesus, in his response, lists the commandments. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. He gives commandments number 7, 6, 8, 9, and 5. And as I said earlier, this makes me glad because in my ADD, I would go out of order all the time listing them out as well. But Jesus is listing commandments that are in regards to the duty between a man and a fellow man. And I say that because the reality is no one can see someone's duty to God just by looking at them. They can't describe his interpersonal relationship with the Lord. But what they can see is how he treats man. Is he generous with man? Is he kind with man? Is he merciful with man? That can be quantified and measured. And that's what Luke often did in his gospel. He would draw attention to unselfish acts, to people being generous, as part of the Christian's personal testimony. Because there was no church there, because Jesus was still walking the earth. And so you would be able to see who was a follower of Jesus, living out the teachings of Christ. Which in addition to recognizing Jesus as Lord, the teachings are also 
to love humanity, love mankind. Jesus also didn't bring up the commandments that dealt with man's relation to God because he was going to allow that to reveal itself to the ruler. The reality is the ruler should know all of these commandments about his duty to God, such as in Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me. Or Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 20, right? Obey God, everything's great. Disobey God, there's going to be death instead of life. There's going to be curse instead of blessing. Deuteronomy 6, 5, this would be a tattoo he would have. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul. He wouldn't have a tattoo because that's against the law. But that's something he should have embedded into his mind. He should know these things. Therefore, he should know that he's not good with God. But the lawyer responds, all these things I have kept from my youth. I've been doing this since I was a kid. Now, he's not saying that in a cocky manner, but he's feeling pretty good because he's able to check off the boxes of what Jesus has listed. The ruler's saying, okay, I've done the things that you listed, Jesus. So he thinks he's doing good, but again, he's not. And that's a trap we can fall into as well as followers today. We so often think we might be doing good because we're, I'm going to church, I'm in a small group, right? I pray for missions here and there. What's your heart posture? That's what matters. It's not about the actions. The theologian Matthew Henry says, men think themselves innocent because they are ignorant. So this ruler did as well. This showed that the ruler had an incorrect understanding of faith. And another issue given by the ruler was that Pharisees and rabbis taught that sins were just physical acts, right? And so when it came to adultery, he's like, I've never cheated on my wife, but have you lusted? Right? Jesus said that just thinking in your mind in the Sermon on the Mount is a sin. And so if you've lusted in your mind, then you have committed that act because lust is rooted in your mind. That is the sin. I haven't ever murdered anyone. Good job. Proud of you. Have you ever hated anyone, though? Oh. Because that is with the sin that is rooted in your heart that leads, right? Hate is sin. And so since this guy's following the checkboxes, Jesus is saying, let me give you one more checkbox to list out again. Jesus isn't saying, do this work to gain access to heaven. He's saying, I'm leading you to a spot. So we're engaging in conversation. Jesus says, do two things for me. Sell everything you own and give it away, and come and follow me. Jesus responds with this answer, and this is what the ruler does. Well, let me, as Jesus gives this answer, we see Jesus loves this man. And the way we know that is in the Mark narrative. It says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. You see, in this interaction, Jesus is full of grace and mercy, wanting this person to understand that there is no hope apart from Jesus Christ himself. So he tells him to sell it all. You're a wealthy guy. Sell it all. Give it away. Again, we see the focus here. One of Luke's focuses that he wants people to see the less thans of society. We see Luke's heart for humanity. We see Jesus' heart for humanity, such as in James 1.27, which says, Pure and undefiled religion is loving orphans and widows. But James wasn't written when this gospel was. Even better, let me give you another one. Leviticus 19.18, Love your neighbor as yourself. The ruler should know that. So he should know that I should be loving everyone around me. And so Jesus offers this man, instead of treasures on earth, how about treasures in heaven? Because the best treasure apart from Jesus Christ is eternal life. That is a fantastic treasure. That in itself should be enough to, be, uh, to have this ruler willing to leave it all. 
But we also see in 2 Timothy 4, 8, there are various crowns that await believers in heaven. We see in Revelation twenty two twelve that there will be rewards upon the return of Christ. We see in Matthew ten forty one that there are rewards for the faithful in heaven. But this is hard for him to grasp. This is hard for us to grasp today because we are used to seeing something material and tangible. We want something that we can hold and see, but that's not what faith is about. That's not what trusting in Jesus is about. So Jesus says, come, follow me. He is calling the rich ruler into relationship, into discipleship. Jesus said these very things to Peter, James, and John, as we studied in the second sermon that John Perez gave a few weeks ago. Follow, akulatheo. Follow me as a disciple. That's what he's saying. That's what follow means. Come with me. Learn from me. Live with me. Join the crew. And the purpose of Jesus giving this command wasn't to show that selling your stuff makes you good with God. It wasn't to just show the ruler that he didn't keep the, the law, right? It wasn't to show the ruler, hey, you failed, haha. What he's wanting the ruler to understand is, hey, you need to trust God to provide for everything, to rely on God for all of your needs, to give a full allegiance to God over the things of this earth. Don't just sell your stuff. That doesn't give you eternal life. Following me, following Jesus, that does. That gives you entrance into the kingdom. But in verse 23, we see the tragedy of the ruler's response to being called to follow Jesus. There's sadness because he was extremely rich. There is a deep grief. This is very different from the Pharisees who would leave Jesus angry after an interaction. There's sadness here because he was looking for hope and he had it and he knew he couldn't give it up to get this hope. He didn't want to give up what he had for this hope because he was given two options. You can have Jesus, or you can have wealth. And this guy chose wealth. The ruler had a misconception of eternal life to a certain extent, I believe, as well. I think the ruler loved the comfort that he lived, and he didn't, he didn't ever want to leave that. He wanted to live a longer life with his stuff. But Jesus said, how about a better life? How about one in eternal glory with me? Because there's a big difference. It reminds me of the story of Lot's wife in Genesis. Right, God's saying, hey, you guys need to get out of here. I'm about to rain down fury on Sodom. Right? Just run. Don't look back. Run, 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 and run. But what does she do? She looks back and turns into a pillar of salt. Because she didn't want to leave the life that she led there. She loved her life. God offered them deliverance. God offered her deliverance, and she chose the world over salvation. This story of Jesus and the rich ruler is the only story where Jesus calls someone and they say no. See, there's the tragedy in that. This guy has an encounter, has a collision with grace, and he leaves worse off. He rejects the invitation of Jesus. We see because his wealth and possessions were an idol to him. And now that has been revealed to himself in this conversation. He's broken the first commandment. He has a God and wealth. And not Yahweh. Luke 16, 13 says, You cannot have two masters, God and mammon. You serve one or the other. New Testament scholar James Rezegu says that to receive the treasure he wants, the ruler must give up the treasure he has. And so this section of text right here, the applications of it, first and foremost, works. Any works you do apart from Christ are nothing. They mean nothing. Any of your works to earn favor mean nothing. Works don't give you glory. Jesus 
does. Be very, let me be very clear. Works are a result of a saving faith, not the precursor to it. Salvation is a free gift. Faith alone. Christ alone. But a checkbox faith, as I said earlier. We have to be, be aware of just checking off boxes in our faith journey. It's so easy to list out the things that we're doing that we think are good and that we become a slave to the checkbox. Maybe the checkbox becomes our idol instead of our focus on our relationship with the Lord. Be very careful that you don't become so satisfied being able to check off the boxes. Again, it's about your heart posture. But we continue. The story doesn't end. Scene change. Now Jesus is talking to the crowd. And he gives this story. How sad, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom, for it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Jesus is here. The pursuit of wealth will distract and even derail the pursuit of faith. It's going to be hard for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God because the wealth is that person's God, not God. So Jesus gives an analogy here. It reminded me of when I was studying for the SAT in high school, right? You had a section of analogies, and I hated it. I never got any of those analogies, but Jesus gives an analogy that's so simple that Chang even got it, right? A camel, which is the largest animal in Palestine, and an eye of a needle, which is one of the smallest items in regards to size of a person that would handle on a daily basis. I get that. Even this guy should get that. A camel's not going to be able to pass through that. Now, some scholars have claimed that Jesus was referring to this specific gate to Jerusalem that was small, that was called of an eye of a needle, but there's no archaeological support for that. The Greek doesn't line up in the different narratives. This is just simply a metaphor that Jesus is using. Let's not look too deep into something and try to look for something. This is just a metaphor. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of all evil. And so let me state this clearly as well. We must remember that this story is about salvation and not wealth. Again, you have teachers that have twisted this text to see that wealth is the enemy, right? This, this poverty gospel movement, if you're not dirt poor, you're not really a believer. Well, then this guy, the teachers that would teach that have not read much in Luke 19 about the story of Zacchaeus. He just sold half of his stuff, and he was right with God. Was it because he sold his stuff, or was it because he had a repentant heart and chose to follow Jesus? He chose to follow Jesus. Daryl Bach, uh, a great theologian, said, Salvation doesn't come through an empty bank account. And so I'm going to add to his, right? Salvation comes only through Jesus Christ. Look at that. He and I collaborated together. But wealth was an idol for this ruler. Now understand that idols affect both believers and unbelievers. Idols keep unbelievers from salvation, and idols keep believers from discipleship. We must have a sense of detachment to the things of this earth in order to have a full and healthy devotion to God alone. And so in verse 26, the crowd's kind of freaking out, right? Who can be saved then? Because in culture, financial prosperity meant that you were righteous because it was considered a blessing from God, because we see it through all the Old Testament texts. See, it says here, if you're rich, you're good with God. Well, the reality is also, if you see here, it says that wealth cannot be trusted in God alone. You cannot worship money. You cannot worship these things. So they were just taking texts and maneuvering them, manipulating them to their own. Now you have the prosperity gospel in the first generation, back then. Prosperity was considered the reward of righteousness and obedience. 
But Jesus is saying, nope, not true. Not true. So because of this, people are saying, what do we do then? What can we do in verse 27? What is impossible with man is possible with God. God can do it. Only God does it. You enter the kingdom of God with God. How does a wealthy person get saved? With God. How does a poor person get saved? With God. I mean, I can imagine Jesus just saying, with God, with God, with God. And they're still like, well, what do you mean, though? I don't know how to simplify this anymore. God does it all. You do nothing. Absolutely nothing. Because works are like filthy rags apart from Christ. God's grace, his power, that is what yields the change. As given in Romans 1.16, it is the power of the gospel to save. It is the power of God to save. It doesn't say the power of Chang, the power of John Perez. It's the power of God. Remember that. Because perfect, sinless living, perfect devotion to God, that's the standard, and it's impossible for us to keep it. And that's why he gave us Jesus. Our collision with grace as followers of Jesus. Because Jesus was the one perfect and sinless Son of God. The only one who could give his own life on the cross for the sins of all men. The only one who could be raised from the dead three days later because as God incarnate, he had the power and ability to do so. And the Bible promises us that if we believe in our hearts and confess with our lips that Christ as Lord, we have eternal life. That's it. This story is about salvation. It's about Jesus Christ. Not any of the other stuff. Those are all distractions. Those are all examples. Focus on Christ for salvation. The application here is very simple. Idols. And so often we think of idols as material things. I remember growing up is like, whatever you worship, you're going to love. And so, right, oh, my Nintendo is my idol. No. There are all sorts of things that can be idols. And usually it's not physical material things. Image. Life only has meaning if I have a particular look or if I look this way. Maybe it's achievement. Life only has meaning if I'm being recognized for all of my accomplishments or perhaps power. Life only has meaning if I'm being, uh, if I have power and influence over others. Perhaps it's comfort. Life only has meaning if I get to do the stuff I love to do in a chill, relaxed environment. Maybe it's family. And what I mean by that is life only has meaning if my children are happy or successful. My life only has meaning if my parents are happy with me. Or perhaps work. I gave this one last because this was God saying, this is you, Jonathan, sometimes, that life only has meaning if I'm productive and getting a lot of work done. You see, there are many more I could list. And we all have potential idols that can derail our discipleship. And we must be aware of those things and live into the will of God for our lives fully. Because the pursuit of all of these things, it says right here, it's only going to leave us empty. Anything apart from Christ will leave you empty. I have yet to find satisfaction in any potential idol. That's more than 10, 15 minutes. Psalm 107.9 tells us, For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Only Christ satisfies. And so we finish it out here. As Jesus is talking to his disciples, Peter, who says, We gave it all up for you. We counted the cost. 
and we chose to follow you. The importance of counting the cost, it's given in Luke 14, verses 25 through 33. It says in those verses that if you're not willing to say goodbye to all that you possess, you're not able to be my disciple. If you're not able to hate your own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, and even your own life, you can't be my disciple. If you're not willing to him, you can't be his disciple. And this is what the ruler I can't say no to my wealth. World. Businessman, he had a family. Here, and I'm going to say this again. Oh, it means maybe giving up family time. It means sacrificing things that you would do as a family for the sake of the gospel, such as discipling a fellow believer, such as serving in your church, such as coming to church and being with your corporate worship family. I'm going to give up these things pursue Jesus wholeheartedly. I was joking around with Jennifer on the flight to L.A. last week, and I was talking about Peter being a fisherman, because we're growing up, you're like, he's just a fisherman, so you're, right, you're just thinking this, right? But he, this was his business. He was a, he, he had his fishing empire, and I told Jennifer, and this is a terrible dad joke, but I was like, he's like Gordon's fisherman, first, first, first generation edition, and she said, that's a terrible joke, and I said, that's okay, y'all aren't laughing, I recognize it's terrible too, but I'm gonna say it anyways. Hopefully that's not your only takeaway from today. <laughs> but Jesus, in verses 29 and 30, acknowledges and affirms the disciples. He says that familial losses could happen because of following me. Because in Middle Eastern culture, family was everything. They might reject you. They might say no to you. They might not welcome you in, into their home anymore. They left their security and comfort, everything they had known to follow Jesus, when you get home from a long trip, it's what? You're glad you're home because it's comfortable and it's your space. It's your comfort. They gave it up for Jesus. Jesus calls us to give it up for him as well. And Jesus promises them riches, not just in the future, but now. So what do we as believers have as riches in Christ now? We have joy. We have peace, security, assurance, satisfaction, fulfillment, confidence, completeness. These are things that we can never get from the world. And the future riches of eternal life. And Jesus is saying this to his disciples and to us today. I assure you, it will have been worth it to follow me. The application point for this is count the cost. What does counting the cost mean? What are you willing to give up to follow Jesus? I don't like that question. It's what are you going to give up to follow Jesus? Don't be willing. Do it. Because Jesus gave his life for you. Jesus offers us as his followers a better way to live, but it's going to cost us something, but it's worth it. And counting the cost is not encouraging when you're a one-man wolf pack. Count the cost in community. This is why brothers and sisters need one another. Because you can encourage one another as you're counting the cost. You can exhort one another. You can Push each other towards holiness as you count the cost together. In staff chapel this week, we were talking about counting the cost. And what did that mean for us as a ministry staff? And really the biggest ta the takeaway was we talked about that it, 
that being on ministry staff, it's more of a lifestyle than just a job, meaning that we're on call all the time, that we miss out on time with family, such as birthdays and events, that Sunday, even though it's a day to worship for us, it's a work day typically, so we have to be willing to drop whatever to go take care of work. There's exhaustion, right? It's time-consuming, it's tiring, but you know what we all said at the end? It's absolutely worth it. No regrets. October is Pastor's Appreciation Month, and I just want to thank everyone in here that has personally encouraged me, affirmed me in what I do as a job. It has really filled my cup. I hope you know that. But I do want to make a plug for all of our ministry staff and elders. Right? If you see them today, encourage them, because they have counted the cost as part of leading and shepherding this church family. Because in the end, this is my last thing, and we'll finish up. As followers of Jesus Christ who have a claim to present and future glory, don't focus on what you gave up to follow Jesus. Focus on what you have gained because you chose to follow Jesus.